the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, kaleidoscopes and a calliope that plays rock lobster backward. Burnt out ends of smoky space navies. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All All right right now. now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel, along with... I'm Bain Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. And I'm Publishing Intern Rachel Mintel. So we have a part two of our two-part interview with David Weber and Joel Presby this time. David and Joel discussed their new entry in the multiverse series, The Road to Hell. This is the world where magic meets steampunk science. It's called the Arcana Sharona universe, although the series is called the multiverse series. Following the first two books, uh, Hell's Gate and Hell Hath No Fury, which is the second book. So Rachel, you just, you just edited this. Was that fun or what? That was a very exciting experience with Audacity Sound Editor being not very nice, but it all got sorted out in the end. Well, fortunately, David doesn't talk too much, right? So no, it was <laughs> very short, you know, very short interview. We were we were debating whether we'd make this three-part or not, but I think we'll, we'll squeeze it in for this one. Maybe we'll just speed it up if <laughs> we do that, or shift the, make David sound like he's one of the chipmunks. Probably. He wouldn't mind that. Uh, yeah, he would never say <laughs> All right, we won't do that. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Now, here's the news. There's new fiction and nonfiction on the Bain.com main page. It's free, and it's good stuff. First, there's Trouble, The Changeling, and The Fuca by Dave Freer. This is a tale of Irish elven magic that's also a setup for Dave's new young adult novel, Changeling's Island. I highly recommend this tale, and I really want to put in a plug for Changeling's Island. I think it's a dang good book, and certainly can be enjoyed by adults, and I expect both of you to read it. It's short, too. We only really call it a YA because it has a youthful protagonist. It's a contemporary fantasy coming-of-age story set on the Australian island where Dave Freer actually lives and shoots wallabies for food, apparently, and goes... (laughs) I was reading about that yesterday. (laughs) He diving. According to his Twitter page, he is self-sufficient, which is amazing. He, he he, He goes diving for fish and gets them with a spear gun often. Oh, wow. How does he have time to write? Hmm. Well, he doesn't have to to go to the grocery store. He has plenty of time. That does save time, time. I guess. Less traffic. I think it's his day job. He's really good. He's an ichthyologist by training, so he probably easily identifies the edible fish. I don't know. But he he gets a lot of these these things called crayfish, although they're actually like gigantic Australian lobsters. He can probably (laughs) eat on that for a while. Anyway, uh, it's called Changeling Island, and it's, uh, it's, it's got this blend of Australian uh, Aboriginal magic and elven, Irish kind of elven magic. The book has a, that cool intersection. The story that we're talking about, Trouble, the Changeling and the Fuca, is really a great introduction to the mythos that Dave explores in Changeling's Island. So check that out. 
What else is on the website, Rachel? Also on Bain.com this month is The Near Future of Human Genome Engineering by science fiction writer and genetic scientist Dan Cobalt. It's a great survey of where we are at the moment with genetic engineering and different paths we might be going down either accidentally or on purpose as we gain power over our own genetic material. Trouble, The Changeling and the Fuca by Dave Freer and The Near Future of Human Genome Engineering by Dan Cobalt are now available at Bain.com. They will also be available perpetually in the free ebook collections, Free Short Stories 2016 and Free Nonfiction 2016, which you can find at Bain eBooks. This is part two of a two-part interview with David Weber and Joel Presby, in which they discuss their new entry in David Weber's multiverse series, The Road to Hell. Part one was presented on the previous podcast. I want to welcome David Weber and Joel Presby to the podcast. Hello, guys, girls, gals. Hey. Uh, hi there. Um, David Weber is the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse, within which that series is set. David has had 29 yep. New York Times bestsellers, and there are over 8 million David Weber books in print. David is also the author of many other Bane books, including the epic fantasy Bazel series, uh, with Norfrasa series also, we might call it, with latest entry, uh, book one in the new Ken Hoden subseries, Sword of the South. He's the author with Linda Evans of two books in the multiverse series, Hell's Gate and Hell Hath No Fury. And now there's a new entry in the multiverse series, The Road to Hell by David Weber and Joel Presby. Speaking of Joel Presby, Joel attended the United States Naval Academy. After commissioning, she studied how to find and kill submarines at Naval Postgraduate School and began dating as submarine officers. She spent six and a half years active in the Navy and has lived in France, Cameroon, the United States, and Japan. She and her husband, the submarine officer, live in Virginia. Joelle is the officer of Grayson Navy Letters Home, which is an epistolary, epistolary story set in David Weber's Honorverse that appeared on the Bain.com website, an obligated service which was in the Honorverse anthology beginnings. And now she is the co-author of the latest multiverse series entry, The Road to Hell with David. Um, the oath that they take is the oath yeah. not to change the future once you get a glimpse. Nope, 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 nope. No. There's what no oath it? about that. Nope, 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 nope. The oath is that is that um, is basically that I'll die before I do less than my best. I mean that that's what it comes down to. Um, and I mean I, seriously, that that's pretty much what they're committed to. Um, and if they have a glimpse that, um, that let's put it this way, nobody knows what the very first uh, gifted emperor's glimpse was. Nobody knows, not even the Karnathians know. They, have, they don't know any place where he ever wrote it down. But they know that it was, it was oh, it was a tsunami of a glimpse. And he set up this this uh, this coronation oath in part because of that glimpse. 
And in fact, the reason that the Sharonian, the, the Ternathian Empire began its withdrawal to its to the, the 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 borders that it has as of the time that we connect with with Arcana has to do with a glimpse. Um, I mean, they literally, literally, uh, uh, the Calorats upon occasion have looked seven hundred or a thousand years into the future in a glimpse and have shaped their policies according to it. And so like, that's one reason why I, I said, and why Joel and I said, you know, in many ways, the, 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 the Calorath palette of the glimpse is the most powerful palette, even though it never directly affects anything outside the perceptions of the person who has it. Well, let's move down into the trenches a little bit. Um, I, my favorite, probably my favorite subplot in the whole book is the uh, the Arcana Battalion, the Hundred Hadron. That um, oh, Hadron Thalmayer. Yeah, that Thalmayer's in, in charge of. He's he's been yeah. mistreating uh, his Sharona prisoners of war, or. Just uh, and there's two sort of heroic officers under him who don't like this. Can you sort of set up that situation? Because it, I, this is my favorite. Uh, I just love following this through the book. Well, um, so he's talking about the Ulthar and Sharma. Yeah, and Sharma. Yeah, but and and, and Thalmayer and what Thalmayer is doing. Thalmayer is an interesting character. Um. In a lot of ways, he's scum of the earth. Um, and if you like him the first time you meet him in the book, then I really screwed up because <laughs> you weren't supposed to. Um, and um, his problem, in part, is he believes that the Sharonans who were trying to heal him were actually torturing him and trying to take over his mind. And he believes this in part because he's a friggin' idiot. Um, but he, but he genuinely has convinced himself of it. And that justifies in his mind, um, his horrendously abusing the, 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 uh, talented healers who were trying to, to heal him. There's a distinct difference. Remember we were talking about how the gifts are stronger than the talents, but the talents are more broadly distributed. Um, talented healers can do incredible things from the viewpoint of our culture in terms of uh, encouraging natural healing, dealing with mental trauma, etc. But they can't hold a candle to what a fully trained magistron can do in terms of, of you know, healing, regrowing nervous tissue, uh, healing the wounds of somebody who's basically had like, had like, 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 third-degree burns over 80% of his body, you know, pulling him through and within like a couple of days having him up and walking around again. So that's the level of healing that Thalmayer uh, attaches to, to gifted healers. This is how it's supposed to work. Well, the Sharonans can't do that. He's paralyzed because his spine was injured. So they're not fixing his legs. Instead, they're just, they're always in the back of his brain. They're doing all this stuff, you know, kind of thing. So he feels, even while they were doing their dead level best to help him, 
that in fact they were torturing him. And even though they've testified under truth spell, which means they have to be telling the truth that they were doing their best to heal him, he chooses not to believe it. And so he's basically beating them to death a little bit at a time. Um, and um, I will let Joel tell you what the 20s under his command think of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think I misspoke. I think they're actually commanders of 25. But, yeah. Uh, no, no. No, no, they're commanders of 50s. They're 50s. They're 50s. Oh, 50s. That's right. The 25s are only the pilots um, yeah, that, that we've met. They're, they're Air Force people. Okay. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, this, this was, this was a, a storyline that, that David wrote, and so it was one of my favorites when I was reading through the draft because I'd get new chapters that you know I hadn't seen anything at all of as I was going through this. Um, but I did get to to deal with a little bit of it. Um, the commanders of 50 are horrified. They also, Ulthar, had, had been a prisoner of war himself, and he isn't blinded by um, misunderstanding the experience. And so he's horrified to see the people who, are, who had treated him well as a prisoner of war being tortured while they're his, his boss's units prisoner and so he has he has to do something about it but he's also in the far frontier world and is afraid that anything he does will just get erased and so he sends a message encoded message back to his wife back in arcana and and i got to work on that part which was yes i was a, a, I a fun handoff <laughs> yeah um yeah and he's married to a um a garthon um, she's, she's from a Garthon family. Well, escaped, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so she's like, this whole situation is being deliberately manipulated on the Arcanan side by people who want to essentially overthrow or at least remake the union of Arcana into their much darker image of what it should be. And the folks who are doing it are the are the Mithlans, the 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 um, the the guys that we talked about who are the the nasty. Uh, they're not so much racist as they are anybody who doesn't have talent should obviously be the slave of anybody who does. Um, and they have this um, this uh, uh, it's a combination philosophy and religion which justifies them in doing anything that they have to do for them to come out on top, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's one of them who is the governor of the region in which the, from which the expedition to Hell's Gate is mounted. So he's the one who has administrative authority over what's going on. And there's an Arcanan commander, um, Harshu, who he's in command of the expeditionary force. And I think that he is probably one of the characters that the readers are most ambivalent about because he's a brilliant commander. He's charismatic as hell. And he has allowed his intelligence people to systematically lie to his troops about how this whole war started and who killed who and whatnot. And he has winked at allowed 
systematic violations of the uh, Karelian Accords, which are the the the, uh, the uh, rules of war and how you're supposed to treat your prisoners, so that captured Sharonans can be tortured for information. And so he's allowed a situation that kind of, in some ways, empowers Thalmayer to arise. The thing is that he knows that at the end of this campaign, whatever happens, he, Harshu, is for the long drop. That there is no way in the world that his Andaran fellow officers will allow him to have done what he's done, even if it produces the most brilliant victory in, in Arcanian history. But they'll allow him to do what he's done without punishing him to the full extent of the regulations. Okay, which, by the way, we haven't said this in so much, but it basically it carries the death penalty. And he's walked into that knowingly. And he's done it for two reasons, one of which was evident in the first book. I think the other one only really becomes evident in this book. In the first book, he does it because he's under orders to, to carry out this offensive, and he has to have that information. However he gets it, he has to have it to keep his own men alive and accomplish his objective. But the other one is that he's got a suspicion about Mulgurthak, the the governor. And he's taking this position of command rather than protesting, rather than saying, no, no, I can't do that. It would be a violation of my honor as an Andaran soldier because he knows Mulgurthak has somebody in the wings who would do it anyway. And so what he's done is he's tried to get out in front of it, and he's put himself, his career, his honor, everything dear to an Andaran. He's deliberately thrown it right down the dragon's throat, knowing that his own ultimate destruction is is going to be the consequence of this, because that way he is going to divert as much as possible of whatever it is Mulgurthak's been trying to accomplish onto him alone rather than onto the Arcanan army and its Andaran officer corps. And so you don't, the reader doesn't really find out about that very much at all until this book. You've had little hints of it before, uh, especially in his relationships with uh, um, uh, Torok, his, uh, his Air Force second-in-command, who is trying to figure out exactly why Harshu, who is a good, honest, you know, honorable man, why he's letting this happen. And, and Torok is beginning to figure it out. Uh, by the end of this book. But I think, Joel, I, I think we have more, I won't say ambiguous, but maybe shades of gray characters in, in these books than in most David Weber books. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say so. Yeah. Um, often, often the bad guys you have are, are have, have shades of gray. Um, but, but in this case, <laughs> this case we we have semi good guys who are also. <laughs> I, I'm going to be I'm, I'm yeah. really going to be unhappy when Harshu finally beats his Waterloo here. You know, I mean it's it's got to happen. Okay, has to. absolutely yeah. has to happen. But I'm going to be like, oh gosh, and it's going to be kind of. I think that um, 
as much as uh, as the Duke of Garth Shelma is determined that the, the people who are guilty of these Corellian offenses are going to be hammered, I think he's going to have mixed feelings uh, when he finally brings the hammer down on Harshu and he understands why Harshu did what he did. Mm-hmm. At the moment, he hasn't got a clue, okay? Uh, I mean, you know, militarily, he knows. What, one of the things that's happening here, and this is horrifying to the Sharonans, is the Arcanans know about the voice talents. And they know about the voice talents because Shalar, who everybody in Sharona thinks is dead, actually has fully recovered and is being transported to Arcana as this key uh, uh, source of information, et cetera. Along and with that, her husband, that yes. that people in Sharona think that they saw die because because they she thought he had. saw she the extreme burns yeah. that he got. And, and that that was now in Magistron, he was dead. Yes. And that was kind so, of the instigation so, of the entire conflict, right? Right there. Yes. Right, exactly. And, and, and and nobody in Sharona has a clue that they're still alive. And they and Mulgurthak instructed his two so-called diplomats uh, who were negotiating with the Sharonans right up to the moment the Arcanians treacherously attacked. Um, he uh, he tells them to not tell the uh, Sharonans that Shalar is alive. And one of the reasons for this is that he doesn't want them to know how much that he think we know about the voices now, because dealing with the voices is going to be critical to have. What what you have here is the Arcanans have dragons that can move like 200 miles in a day. Okay, there is a reason there's a dragon but on they, the cover of the book. <laughs> yes, but yeah. they don't have they don't have steam locomotives that can haul 10,000 tons of cargo. 200 miles in a day if it has railroad tracks. All right. Um, so there are very different logistic constraints on the two sides. One of the logistics constraints is that the fastest an Arcanan can transmit a message is maybe a thousand miles a day using a Hummer. It's kind of a genetically engineered hummingbird carrier pigeon. Whereas the Sharonans, a single voice can send the message 700 to 1,000 miles instantaneously. So if you have voice relays, a message can get all the way from Hell's Gate to Sharona in about 10 days. And the only reason that it takes that long is you have to cross the Atlantic Ocean in a couple of places to get into range of the voice on the other side of it. Because one end of your portal might be in, be in Timbuktu, and the other one might be in Brisbane um, or Easter. There actually, we actually have one that's on Easter Island. I just put it there for the heck of it. Um, and all of this is a factor when you're trying to to get stuff moving. So the Arcanans know that the Sharonan command loop is much shorter than theirs. The Arcanan response loop is shorter than the Sharonan response loop because they can move more quickly after they finally get the word that they need to move. And I did that deliberately when we were building the world because it makes very different constraints for the two sides. 
um, which is going to have a tendency to keep them from mirror imaging one another in terms of what they do tactically and, and strategically. But one of the things that Harshu knows because they know about the voices is that somehow he has to shut down the voice network to keep the Sharonans from knowing that he's coming. And there's only one way that the Arcanans can see to do that, and that's to kill the voices. And so they are systematically shooting every voice that falls into their hands on the way up chain. And this is horrifying to the Sharonans. However, there is a passage in which Zindel basically says to Andrin, look, until we came up with the protocols for how to shut down a voice, okay, that was routine Sharonan practice was to kill the voices from the, for the other side. Um, and yes, it's been like, I don't know, I, like 11,000 years or something since they've had the protocols to shut them down. But the Arcanans never had them, if you see what I'm saying. It's just another reason why both sides are going to see the other as barbarians. Oh, absolutely. well, okay. The, the, the whole thing with the diplomats, okay? The Sharonans, when they sit down to talk to the diplomats, never say, oh, and by the way, uh, we're going to formally promise that we won't resume hostilities. Okay? Well, from the Sharonan perspective, why in the world would you do that? You're going to have voices doing the negotiating. Okay? So you're going to know what the other side really thinks. Sharonan negotiations ain't like, you know, <laughs> negotiations. All right, well, the Arcanan perspective is, well, the only reason that they didn't do that is because they must be planning to launch a sneak attack on us when the time is right. All right, so the, the Sharonans so are... So it's only fair for us to do it first. It's only fair for us to do it first, you know, hit them back first. Um, and, and so the Sharonans are like Pearl Harbor on steroids is their response to this attack while we're negotiating. And the Arcanid position, well, you know, I don't understand why they're so upset. We just did it before they did it, you know. And, and so that's one of the points where Shalar, a time or two, just sort of stops and says, you know what, just when I think I understand you guys, you come up with something that is so incredibly off the – it can't possibly work that way. And, and, and the Arcanids had the same response with her, with, with, with what she and Jathmar tell her, tell them about Sharona from time to time, because they just come from such totally different matrices. Can you please tell us at, yeah. at the anecdote of the Dijin and the jar? No, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll let Joelle do that. That was in one of her sections. It was great. I'm having trouble hearing. What's the question? She wants to, he wants, he wants you to tell about the Dijin in the jar. Ah, the gin. Yeah. Ah, well, that one, that that one's interesting because on on one hand, you you get to learn a little bit about how how strong some of the weapons that Arcana has really are that Sharona really doesn't have at all. Where there are there are these gin that were created as as a weapon of war by um, actually the Mithlid Shakira cast boards and and some of their most uh, gifted magisters that they had at the time when they were doing the, the unification war. Of course, at the time, it wasn't called the unification war because they didn't know it was going to end that way. Yeah. Uh, but as a result of this, there, there are these gin that you, if, if you unbottle them, you can 
ask them, they'll grant you wishes, but they're, they're gin and they lie and they'll abduct, you know, <laughs> the most beautiful woman on the, on the continent, continent and appear her in front of you. And well, she's just been kidnapped and she's not happy. And there are gin victim <laughs> aid societies that, that deal with this and, and, Right, and track down the, the criminals who've gone and illegally used a gin and get the, and, the gin and to go back what, in the bottle because they, the yeah. gin find it all this big joke to, to play, thankfully. Otherwise, everybody would be annihilated by them. Well, yeah, and, and one of the points where, where, that I love is where like, Jaylar and Jaffa are like looking at like, horrible. Well, how do you destroy one? And they say, you can't. I've <laughs> never done it. And they're like, oh, my God, what were you people thinking? Like, it wasn't us. <laughs> it was yeah. scary. They're all crazy. <laughs> I like, um, I think it's. That, that's actually um, the. The Shakira using this weapon against the Andaran armies and navies brought in the Ramsarans into the war to begin with. And so it's actually strategically the beginning of the end for the Mifflins that they, they went so overboard. Well, and, and the, the Ramsarans are in sort of an uneasy... Are, okay. Sharona is really, in a lot of ways bipolar in terms of the power balance. I, let's put it this way. The European Empire of Chababusar does not, does not, does not want to piss the Ternathians off into actually going to war with them. From Euromathia's viewpoint, it would be a very short, painful, ugly experience. Okay, the only thing they got going for them is that the Ternathians don't want to do it. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Right. Uh, but there's really only the two main poles to the power. There's a lot of smaller, uh, uh, like Shalar's um, uh, home country and uh, um, uh, other states that are like Farnalia, who are like, oh man, you know, they're like Farnalia's in North America, and they're like, I, I loved ourselves, mother's attitude towards he just the only reason Zindel's emperor is he won the genetic lottery, you know, kind of thing. They're good Republicans, you know, kind of thing, um, in in the sense of believing in a republic. Um, the um, so, you, but by and large, you really only have two major power blocks in Arcana. There are three. There's the Ransarans who are the uh, the pragmatic, um, I think of them as really the most successful capitalists of, of Arcana. They are the ones who have done the most to take the various uh, uh, arcanely produced technologies and develop them into something that is usable by the general public and whatnot. Uh, they come up with a lot more practical applications of magic than anybody else. Um, and they really are this whole notion of aristocracy and codes of, you know, arcane codes of, of uh, aristocratic honor and so forth is very foreign to their thinking. And they really don't like the militarism they see as inherent in Andaran society. Okay, then you have the Mithalans, and they are the... the they regard themselves as the theoreticians of magic. They are like all the Hawkings and Eisenhower and, and, and uh, Einsteins, as far as they're concerned, have been mythology. They're wrong about that, but 
that's how they see it but now. It's large. Extent, they they do have a, a lot. Yes. Yeah. And I they mean, did. they've they because of the way they the system that they've set up for anyone who's not gifted works slave labor for the for the people that that had gifts and the people who have the yeah. strongest gifts are are free to to study and and focus solely on that. It, in an odd sort of way, in an odd sort of way, the Mithalans are almost Athenian. Yeah. In that you have relatively small class where there's like this total equality. Well, no, that's not really fair because when you look at the line lords and whatnot, that's that's a lot more um, uh, Spartan almost in the sense mm-hmm. of absolute ability. You know, so there there are, there are one there of the things I tell people. Yeah, one of the things I tell people to do in the worlds that I build is don't try to fit an exact historical parallel to any of these because what I like to do is to take historical forces and see how they might have produced something different with a different set of, of inputs so that you can't take mythol and say, okay, well, it's this. It's not this. It's a combination of that, if, if you see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Ransarans didn't get involved in the war because they loved the Andarans. They got involved in the war because they loathed the Mythalans. Um, and it looked like Mythal was going to win. Um, and so they came in on Andara's side. And the way that it kind of sort of works is that Andara runs the army. Um, Ransar runs the economy and has about Probably between uh, between our, uh, Andara and Ransar, you're probably looking at a little better than two thirds of the political clout mm-hmm. of of Arcana. Mythal has less political power than either of the other two, but has the has two advantages. One is all of these you know high caliber magic practitioners, and the other one is that there is this uh, secret society that nobody in Ransar or or uh, Andara knows about, which is working to a plan to fix everything, um, and not in a way that <laughs> Andara or Ransar is going to like. Um, <laughs> so so you have this this much more complex political interplay going in going on in Arcana, even though you have less surface political conflict than you do between Ternathia and Uramathia in Sharona. And that was that was deliberate too. Um, it's it's it was it was important to me when I started looking at these two societies that both of them are going to have good guys and bad guys. Both of them are going to have honorable and dishonorable people. Um, I think I'm hard put to decide whether I like the Ransarans or the Andarans better in Arcana. I've actually spent more time with the Andarans because of the military operations and so forth that I've been doing. But I like Gadriel. I really do, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I, I especially loved her comments to the uh, to the uh, the prosecutor in the in the court martial when he's like, "You're a gold digger. You want this, you know." And she's like, 
You think I want to marry somebody? <laughs> what are you? No, you're Aunt Darren. Okay, that explains it. Of course you're crazy. <laughs> oh, but, yeah, she's um, a fun character. It's, it's, yeah. And you, and I remember, I, you know, one of the things I always liked best about her was the scene, and I cannot remember whether Linda or I did this in the original draft, where, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, the, the guy who becomes the uh, Harshu's intelligence officer, uh, Neshak, um, wants mm-hmm. to, to, he's trying to separate Shalar and Jathmar from Jassic Olderhand. Jassic was the commander of the platoon who massacred their force. And the whole massacre started because one of his subordinate officers, when he was the commander of the company the platoon was from, the platoon commander violated a direct order and killed the leader of the Sharonan force. And that's what led to the firefight that led to the deaths of virtually all of the Sharonans. And Jassic did his damnedest to stop it from happening, but once the firefight was in, he had no choice but to command his guys to try and win. Um, and afterward, to 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 acknowledge the fact that that this was what had happened, he takes Shalar and Jathmar under his personal honor as his baronal. And what that means is he makes the members of his family, and in effect, every member of his family is obligated to die to protect them. Uh, I mean, that's how seriously he's acknowledging. And uh, Neshak wants to separate them from him and put them in cells. And Jassik is about to burst a blood vessel when Gadriel says, no, that's all right. Put them in a cell and put me in it with them. Okay, because I am, I, by, the, and by the way, I teach combat magic. <laughs> okay, so Neshak is like, oh, that's okay. <laughs> you know, we, we, we won't push that, you know. Um, and, and also, one of the things that, I have to tell you that the character that I miss writing about the most, the one that I get to write about, we write about it, he's he's everywhere, but we never see him after like the first two or three chapters of the first book. And Joelle knows exactly who I'm talking about, don't you? Her 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 mentor. Okay. I just, oh yes, yes I do. Yes. Uh, basically, her her she was accepted uh, to the Mythal Falls Academy, which is the most prestigious magical academy on on um, on uh, on on uh, Arcana. Um, and when she arrived, it turned out that her her gift was stronger than like anybody else in the entire academy, and the Mithalans couldn't admit that was true because she was a Ransfaran, she was from, like, basically, for all intents and purposes, a peasant farmer family um, in, in Ransar. And um, uh, Bose Halleton, who was, like, the, the head of theoretical magic at the, at the academy, when they accused her of cheating and so forth because they were going to drum her out of the academy, he stood up beside her and said, screw you, and walked out. I mean, he was like the number one guy in, in all of Mithalan society. He walked out of Mithal and with her founded an entirely new academy in, in Andara under, and under the product, protection of the Dukes of Garshoma, who And the current Duke of Garshoma is Jassic Olderhand's dad. 
Um, and Halifin is everywhere um, on the on the Arcanan side because the Arcanan public has been told that the Sharonans shot him down when he was trying to help um, a wounded soldier. And in fact, it was a friendly fire incident, and it was an Arcanan weapon that killed him. And so the people that, that Gadriel hates most in the entire multiverse, the, the, the Nithalan uh, Shakira, are using his death to drive the, the, the war hysteria against Sharona. And you have to understand that from a Nithalan perspective, uh, nothing could be a greater abomination than Sharona, where you're not talking about magic at all. You got all these people with these mongrel talent things and a society that could care less about using magic to, to bridge oceans and, and that kind of thing. So it's, it's a, it's complicated. Well, it's, as, been, it's been a lot of fun, but we got a lot of balls in the air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, as the, all right. So you, Some of them are fireballs. <laughs> the conflict is building between Sharona and Arcana. Um, and one of the great themes of the books is the logistics and the technology and the new technology that's coming online. Can you talk a little bit about like the bison and the, what are the obstacles uh, and strength of both sides in the war? Okay. The primary strength of the Arcanans is that in effect, they're built around the concept of air mobile infantry. Uh, they can use, move huge distances in relatively short periods of time. And your typical dragon weighs like 40 to 60 tons and can transport its own weight plus a little bit if it has to. And it can transport it like a, literally it's like they can, they can fly like at, at a hundred miles an hour for like, six hours a day or something like that. I'd have to actually pull up the numbers to, to look. But they have enormous speed when they decide to move. And terrain is not a problem. They don't care whether the portal has a railroad in it or anything. Boom, they can, they can travel. Um, they also have the advantage that the Sarcolis crystals, which are at the heart of um, arcane technology, and can be think they can be thought of as um, as batteries, if you will. But this is where their spells are stored to be used. I, you can have one that, the a, I picture them as sort of magic iPhones. Yeah, that yeah they are. They are. But you know, they also they have like personal personal crystals with software in them. You know, kind of spellware that they can do. They have. They, they basically they have. Every, yeah, they have all these 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 smartphones and that just can't talk to each other. That they carry that send the messages have a crystal embedded in their throat. There's a lot of anytime there's a spell, there's often a, a crystal involved, especially yes. if it's yes. not a magister or magistron actually physically doing it at that moment. Yeah. Um, so, they, they, and that, but the problem they have is that the logistics space to support their sarcolis crystals is narrow because you have to have a gifted technician to charge the crystals. Okay, so it's kind of like, yes, we can, here, I have this this sized crystal, and it has 40 charges that are the equivalent of a 120-millimeter mortar in them, okay? And I can carry this basically in my backpack and use it when I need it. 
The problem is once I've used them up, unless I have somebody who is gifted and has that spell and has several hours or days to work in, I can't reload it. Okay. Whereas the, the poor sod in Sharona service is carrying the, the 180 pound base plate for the 120 millimeter mortar. And he's got 17 mules hauling his, his ammunition for it. But as long as they can just bring him the shells, he's good to go. All right. Um, so they've got speed, they've got flexibility, um, and they have um, they have basically unmanned recon drones that they can send out to do aerial reconnaissance, which the Sharonans can't. All right, well, the Sharonans have a much broader base in the fact that they can give a rifle and a bayonet and hand grenades to every single one of their guys, and it doesn't matter whether they have any talent or not. Uh, they have uh, good artillery. Um, they have railroads and can literally send like 10,000 tons at a time booming down the line to wherever they need to be. Uh, so once they start moving, they move with a lot more power than a, than any of the Arcanan forces we've seen so far has been able to do. Bear in mind that the Arcanans are a lot further towards the frontier than the Sharonans because they've explored so many more star systems, uh, star systems, so many more universes. I think if I if I'm remembering the math correctly, they've explored like three and a half times as many as the Arcanans have. So they're operating at the end of a much longer logistics pipeline in a lot of ways than than the Sharonans are. Um, the Sharonans have the advantage in communication times because they have the voices. Um, there are reconnaissance spells that the Arcanans can use, but they're not as good as the distance viewers um, who are uh, talented Sharonans who can actually project their viewpoint to to remote distance. Now, there's, there's a range limitation on it. Um, and the most uh, important um, uh, militarily of the, of the uh, distance viewers are the predictive distance viewers because they have a loop that they can they combine a little precog with it and they're the guys who can tell you, okay, in five minutes you're going to need to fire around at 40 degrees elevation, five degrees right declension and I'll tell you when to pull the trigger. Okay, and, and that kind of fire control is something that was never possible in our universe. You know, you know, they don't need distance viewers don't need range finders. They know the exact range. They know the exact bearing, which is going to make naval engagements really interesting if I ever get to fight one. Um, but um, so the, they, they definitely have different strengths and different weaknesses. Um, right this minute, the biggest disadvantage the Arcanans have is that logistics problem. And our good friend Mulgurthak, the nasty governor, has deliberately made that worse for Harshu because he wants Harshu's expeditionary force to get reamed. Uh, it's part of the plan. Um, and so even though I do think that um, that uh, Changorlas, the... the uh, commander of the uh, 4th Dragoon Division who came up with the strategy that the Sharonans use in this book, even though I think it, he is definitely deserves all of the, the the credit he's going to get for audacity and thinking outside the box and, and everything else. One reason that it works as well as it does 
is that he's correctly deduced that the Arcanans are operating on a logistical bootstring. He just doesn't know why it's that way. And he's partly right that it's because they're so far from home, this is all they had available, but he doesn't know that Mulgurthak is deliberately starving his own advanced troops of the logistical support that they need. And shortly in the next book, um, he will also be discovering that Shalar is still alive. Um, I actually think that um, one of my... um, uh, favorite uh, characters in the entire book is the commander of Fort Gartoon, um, which is where um, Hadrick and Thalmayer is is doing his thing. You know, once once uh, once life starts getting kind of crappy <laughs> for the uh, for the um, uh, um, for the for the uh, with the Arcanan counterattack. Um, but, um, the, um, um, he's, he's, uh, he's, um, an Arpathian and they're kind of from the steppes of, of, uh, of, uh, Eurasia. Um, and, um, I just, I've always thought he was an interesting guy. Uh, he, he's the one who, when he sees Griffins attacking his fort for the first time, uh, uh, steps out onto the, the, the veranda of his headquarters block with a pump um, eight-gauge shotgun and nails about seven of them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's just like, well, that's what you do with demons. You kill them. Sounds kind of like and, and when, yeah. Well, and 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 when uh, when the the two fifties decide to to bust his guys out of the brig, uh, he's far and away senior to either of them, and they're like, "Oh crap, we are so screwed because Balmayor got away, and he's going to go tell Harshu that we need need, and we're all going to get dead." <laughs> and these guys, like, seems to me, you boys got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I've always liked him, um, but there are some, there's some guys on both sides who are like that. Okay, um, uh, I like um, Otwal um, Otwal Threbish, uh, the yeah. the the sergeant. The, the you know he's like the long term sergeant major on the. Uh, on the Arcanan side. Um, and I can't, Joel, help me. I can't remember the name of the Garthon in the, um, uh, you know what I'm talking about. It yeah, starts with I, a J. I do. I do. I just, Jugsar. I just can't remember. Yes. Jugsar. Trooper yes. Jugsar. Uh, yes. Um, and you know, these, these are kind of like, like Jassic's little guys. I got a hunch that Atwal and Jengthar are both going to leave the service when when uh, Jassic goes into politics. I I can just see them, you know, becoming part of his his household, his security guys. Um, yeah. But um, and one of the wonderful things is Joelle and I know where ultimately we'd like the series to go, but we have not painted ourselves in on a lot of how we get there. Um, there's definite story arc uh, that if, if we ever get to tell the entire story that will end up with the readers knowing where the portals came from 
and and you know how they work and and everything else, um, and which will eventually get our universe involved in all of this, um, assuming that the support is there for the books and that uh, Joel doesn't shoot me at some point uh, <laughs> in working on me. Um, as long as Sharon and Andy don't shoot us, David. Yeah, okay, well, that's true. That's true. Well, I, I have to say, uh, way back when, um, in like 91, I think, 92, Jim Bain said to me, uh, he said, you know, Dave, everything you write is spawning sequels. So I got a novel, you should pardon the expression, concept for you, which is why don't you like plan a series? And I was like, ooh, shiny. Um, and, I, and I came back with, Ten stories, story, story concepts that I, I pitched to him. Uh, now, I was not aware at that point that for 20 years he'd been looking for somebody to do a, an interstellar Horatio Hornblower. So I don't think he bothered to read any of the others. I think he said, ooh, shiny, when he saw Honor Harrington. And he wrote me like a four-book contract, I think, when I think I had one that was actually in print at the time, which was a remarkable uh, um gesture of fate on his part and it allowed me to become a full-time writer a lot sooner than I would have otherwise but the multiverse was one of the ones that I pitched uh safe hold was one of the ones that I pitched um there's another one uh that uh, I still want to do that was one of the ones that I pitched and I still have at least a couple of others from that list that in my copious free time, I could spin off another series from. Um, but, okay, I'll put it this way. It's much better to have the problem of having too many stories to tell and not enough time in which to tell them than to not have a story when you need to tell one. Okay? Um, I I know, yeah, okay, I, Joel has heard me ask this before, I'm sure. But, uh, the the have you read the 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 novel, The Plague Dogs? Oh yeah, it's by the, the same guy who did Watership Down. Okay, and the dogs mm-hmm. are talking about it. They're going to keep running till the dark comes down. Okay, well that's kind of how my writing is. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean, I hope that if the point comes that advancing senility has me not doing good work anymore that I will have the, the the smarts and the grace to stop. Um, but until that time comes, um, I got so much stuff, so many stories that I, I need to tell. Um, and I am honestly planning on wrapping up a series in 2018. Um, which will happen to be the 25th anniversary of Basilisk Station. Um, and uh, we'll finally tie up the, the storyline that I had in mind when I started that that book. doesn't mean necessarily there'll be an end to the universe. It just means that I will finish that, that storyline. Um, so there's, uh, you know, I just... The multiverse is... I think probably one of the most satisfying universes that I've built from the perspective of creating a literary 
universe. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not to say, which is not to say that I'm not, you know, the honor verse is as detailed as as uh, as the multiverse. It's more flexible, though. Um, and what I mean by that is that in the multiverse books, I'm limited to just one planet. <laughs> okay, I can do it, whatever I want with that planet, but I'm, yeah. I'm stuck with it. And, and, and Joelle and I can have as many iterations of it as we need, but it's still the same planet. And it's like when the Sharonans, for example, are exploring a new universe, it's like the main thing is to find out where the portal is because once they can orient, and let's say Comstock load is 500 miles that way, you know, yep. Yep. and, they, and they, they move out to, to exploit um, whatever they need to, to exploit. Um, so it's, it's, it, it, what you're really looking at, I mean, all right, if you just sit down and actually think about the potential here, let's say that there are 4 billion Sharonans picking a number. Okay. That's 4 billion human beings who have like 80 planets to spread out on. So in theory, okay, you're 4 billion people have got like 50 million on each of the planets available to them. Okay. So it's like, look, they got the population of the East coast of the United States spread out across the entire planet. So there are, you know, that whole thing about the expanding frontier and how it affected the thinking of, of the United States. Think about applying that on a planetary basis and and what that means in terms of the of the 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 cultures involved now in in both cases although more really in Sharona's case than Arcanus, you have a very well established cultural template going into this because they have 50,000 years, 5,000 years of recorded history um, of, of written records of, of, you know, without like the, yes, we have fragments of Pliny, we have, you know, Thucydides and we have two books from Plutarch, you know, they have entire libraries left from 5,000 years ago. So in some ways, this is an ancient, ancient culture, much more so than Arcana. And yet, in a lot of other ways, Sharona is much less bound by its past. If you look at like the Farnalians, the New Farnalians, and in North America and so forth. So it's been a lot of fun to to play with that part of the of the story, the, the, where does this extremely, um, uh, uh, long established society go? There's a line in, um, uh, Paul Anderson's the high crusade that I've always loved. And it's the passage where, um, the Baron from, uh, from, uh, Plantagenet England, who winds up conquering the interstellar empire, 
but he's he's negotiating with uh, this uh, this other race, and he doesn't want them to know that he has basically just his longbowman and whatnot overboard. <laughs> they got kidnapped, kind of thing. So one of them is asking, you know, if he's he's he basically he's trying to find out if the Baron has sufficient seniority to uh, to uh, uh, to negotiate with him, you know, without impugning the honor of the other person. And the Baron tells Brother Parvus, who is translating for him, tell him that one of my ancestors, Noah, once commanded the combined fleets of Earth. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a, such a gorgeous line. <laughs> you know, and I could see, I could see one of these, you know, one of these Sharonids coming up that um, kind of thing. I just, I, I'm, I do hope. I do hope that Joel and I get to continue uh, the series, uh, and partly because it was so much fun uh, working with her on it. Um, and also, I think we have actually assembled the groundwork that we need to make it much easier next time around. Uh, the first time around, because I was building as I went along, there wasn't as much need to go back and keep checking what we'd already mm-hmm. done. When we started this third book, we're like, oh, crap, because I'm Joelle was coming to it cold, which meant that she needed as much background as I could possibly give her in order to, to you know, keep everything where it needs to be. And I had to go back and reconstruct it for myself. And in doing that, it's kind of like that, you know, when one teaches to learn kind of thing. Um, and I feel like some parts of the multiverse got brought into much sharper focus for me uh, working my way through. Oh, one thing I want to say much earlier, um, I mentioned the fact that one of the differences between Sharona and Arcana is that their scientific methods are exactly reversed. Sharona uses our version of the scientific method, which is the purpose of the experiment is to disprove the theory. And if you can't disprove it, then it stands. Demonstrate that you can do it. And this leads to some differences in mindset that aren't as apparent as that, that I think readers are not noticing too much because it's so buried in the woodwork. Okay. Uh, but that's one reason why Gadriel is so scared when she figures out why the rifle wouldn't fire in Arcana the Sharonin rifle wouldn't fire an arcana, and then why it did. Should we tell them what that is, Joel, or let them wait to find out in the next I uh, think we should let them wait to find out. We will let them wait to find out. Well, we uh, should... Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, should probably... Because uh, that's also part of the, the coolness with the Finians and everything. And, oh, yeah, my God. Yes. Yeah, there's just so much else to talk about that, you know, the, the cetaceans, the Simians. It's just, it's such an amazing, rich world. Yeah, okay, well, my, one of my favorite characters that Joelle came up with in the entire book, probably the two, my two favorite characters, her Simian ambassador, Sulan. I, 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 you know, he's just like uh, an orca with a scar over his eye. I think Kate Cleaver is the orca who, who, talks, who talks the most. Yeah, um, yes. I, I, I'm I drawing like a blank that. on the, the other one. I thought, he, I thought he had, I thought Teeth Cleaver had the scar above his eye. Uh, he was the one who was like, I am black, I am white, they're just gray. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, I was hoping we could bring that, that, bring that up. I love that. Yes. 
That was great. Yeah. The difference. Yeah, but you know, and, and I, you got we got the shark caller in there. I hope something bad's going to happen to him eventually. But one of the things that's going on here is, you know, sometimes in just my books, much less in one that Joelle and I are both stirring, which is this big, they're going to be bad guys who just sort of disappear into the into the woodwork and never get dealt with, never get a comeuppance, because that's the way it works. Okay, I mean, well, you know, Joel does have, have black marks against him, and and you know, oh, yeah. he, he is he is in a bad situation at the end. Yes, yes, and so deserved. So deserved. Very much so. Uh, yeah, he's he's not a nice person. Um, he's actually, you know, he reminds me a little bit about of, of Hannah Arendt's comment about the banality of evil. The, okay. the problem with Drindle is that is he's he's not a nice person who does not realize how much nastier than him people can get. Yes. He, he thinks he's as nasty as he gets. That, that, that is his error. That is his main failing. He thought he that. I think he changed his mind there towards the end, when it's like, all I want is to get out of here alive, please. Yeah. <laughs> and essential, he needs to work. Um, well, I, I promise you that a lot of the villains will get satisfying comeuppances uh, in, in, yes. in the court. Unfortunately, some more of the good guys are probably going to get uh, hurt really bad. For instance, uh, I think it should be pretty evident that there's a good chance that Andrin is going to get to the Empress sooner than she had planned on, given what... Um, but I've, One of the characters, one of the sequences in the second book, this, which predates Joel, Joel, of course, for me, was the meeting of Zindel and Darcel. Whereas Darcel, who's a very strong voice, and the voices are all, you know, they're like, you know, there are all these rules about how they're not, you don't listen in on other people's thoughts, et cetera. But sometimes if your talent is so strong, there's like an emotional leakage or something that you can't avoid, no matter how hard you try. And Prince Janaki sent Darcel back to Sharona. And ostensibly, he sent him back to Sharona um, because he was an information source. And partly it was to keep him from destroying himself, seeking vengeance on Arcana for the slaughter of his entire crew of explorers. He's the only member of the of the the, the crew that Shalar and Jathmar were in, as far as anyone in Sharona knows. He's the only survivor because he was back at the entry portal to the universe relaying messages rather than forward with them when this happened. But Jassic also has partial glimpse where Darcel is concerned. And he, Janaki has this, this glimpse that tells him that Darcel is going to be important to Andrin, but he doesn't have a lot. His, his talent is not such that he is. When Darcel gets to Sharona, uh, Janaki has sent a letter of introduction to get Darcel in to see the emperor. Which Darcel is like, oh my God, you know, he just wants to turn around and run. There's one point he says, you know, I'm a fast guy. If I turned and ran now, I could be all the way to the train station before they got me into the <laughs> audience room. <laughs> but um, when he actually meets Zindel, Zindel has a glimpse 
actually it's it's that evening when he's when he's come to the come to have dinner with the royal family i think i can't remember exactly but zindel sees him being there for andrin sees how critical darcel is going to be to andrin's future and because of the strength of his of darcel's gift and because of the strength of the glimpse darcel shares it with zindel and so even before he meets the emperor's family, he knows all of the emperor's daughters intimately, in a sense, because he's seen them through their father's eyes. And that scene, that event, is so central to where Darcel is and who he winds up being. That was one of the parts of the second book that I most enjoyed writing. Now, also... Tony, you asked earlier, and we, we strayed from the point, you, you asked about the Bisons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, basically, the Sharonans have developed steam-powered technology to levels that we never did in our universe. I mean, there are you can see where the parallels to our, our universe's development of steam are. Like they use monotube uh, helical boilers uh, fired by kerosene, which, you know, you can raise steam in a hurry and you can raise a lot of power in a relatively small package. And people don't realize that if you direct couple a steam engine to the, to the drive wheels, drive shaft of, of your vehicle, you don't need the kind of complicated transmission you need. For if, if you're talking a, a reciprocating steam engine. So I got to play around with building vehicles that were never built, but theoretically could have been built uh, in our universe. And the Ternopians have this guy who has this absurd notion that the entire army should move in vehicles. Okay. Uh, and the bison is basically, actually was developed more as it's not a fighting vehicle it's a it's an apc a a personnel carrier and a heavy-duty tractor to tow trailers uh in in the advance the the steel mule is the hat track and trust me you're going to see vehicles with turreted cannon and whatnot turning up although I've decided i'm not going to call them tanks i haven't decided but i am going to call them yet i may speak (laughs) They steal H.G. Wells and call them land ships. I, I don't know, you know, but... Well, it's, it's by any going other to name. Be, yeah, well, you know. Well, the, 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 well, they're going to be armored fighting vehicles. That part will work, you know, kind of thing. Um, but they're also, the Sharonans, like the, the standard Sharonan uh, uh, infantry weapon, standard Ternathian infantry weapon, is basically the, um, and a lot of the shortly infield, the British... Uh, magazine rifle bolt action from World War One, and they have a guy who is he's in the tech bible but we haven't seen him in the books yet and he's kind of uh, there John Moses Browning um, and he's invented they've actually have just begun to develop uh, semi-automatic pistols and whatnot um, and he's going to develop essentially the Maxim machine gun instead of the ones that they have now that are fired by turning a crank and using multiple barrels and, and whatnot. Um, so it's going to get even uglier for the Arcanans. Now, on the other hand, the Arcanans are going to be like, hmm, you know what? They can fire shells through portals. There's no reason why we can't figure out something to throw a crystal 
through a portal and let the spell go off on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can't drive a spell across the portal, but you can fling a crystal across it. Uh, so it's going to, and, and I've actually, well, I don't think I mentioned this to you. Um, I actually have a plan noodling away in the back of my head to turn Griffins into cruise missiles. Think about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you look. You load one up with a crystal that's like the equivalent, maybe a 2,000-pound bomb. So you go fly into the other guy's sport. Like, okay, sure, boss. You know? yeah. So, you know, and I am, I am looking forward to the first time that one of those, um, one of those uh, Shakira uh, Hydras uh, yes, runs yes. The, the, the sea drakes, the Hydras. Yeah, you know, I I don't think they may they make work out pretty well against sharks. But I don't think they're going to make out real well against a bunch of orcas. Or like, you know what? We can have thank you as well as bite your various. Yes, well, orcas off. are yeah. actually sentient. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, well you're yeah, looking I, forward to this idea. Yeah. yeah. Not knowing well, about snakes, but to, to fight what, again. What we haven't done, what we haven't told anybody yet, is whether or not. The, the cetaceans in other universes are sentient. The only ones that we've actually seen this going on in is Sharona, but we haven't ruled out the possibility right. that there could be cetacean ambassadors in some of these other universes that we just haven't heard from yet. We do know that, we do know that the simians, some of them, have done at least some expansion across portals. Yes. But um, it's, you know, it's kind of like, I, I, I have to admit that I find the notion of the cetacean fifth column operating behind arcane lines hugely appealing. Okay, it's like, yes. <laughs> Could they it's wear actually, a little berets, It did happen perhaps? that some of the portals were underwater. Yes, it's like, you know, your humans have harpoons, okay, and whaling ships. Our humans haven't done that kind of stuff for three, four thousand years. You'll like ours better. (laughs) 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 And it's true. I mean, I I do love, I do love, part of the thing I love about the cetaceans is the bit where uh, Shalar's mom is listening to them, trying to decide whether or not it's okay to eat the bad humans if if they get our canids and how do we tell them apart and the orcas are sending these detailed messages about what people taste like (laughs) (laughs) and it's like it's like you know people are well we don't eat humans anymore (laughs) anymore (laughs) (laughs) and you kind of go like well there's writing it down in a little scroll somewhere and ignoring it for a thousand years. If you're going to remember any history of the cetacean, it has to be remembered by a, a living cetacean, including, you know, what human tastes like back in the day. Yep, yep. Well, and, and one of the problems that we've got in a few places, we have used simply direct transfers of, of terminology in order to simplify things for the reader instead of coming up with a different species name for every porpoise or whatever. Right. We have not done it uniformly, and partly that is to, to help to contribute to the texture of this is, this is a different universe, not ours. But, for example, we refer to the thunder flukes as the biggest whale in Sharona, and this is obviously the blue whales. Uh, are the are the thunder flukes, and they are the um, 
senior members of the cetacean community. So there, there are places where we have come up with, with other terminology. It's, and, you know, and we've got like totally different cosmologies going on here too, although you haven't really seen a lot inside the Arcanum uh, cosmology uh, at this point. I mean, you know who some of the deities that they were referred to are, like Mother Jambakala. I mean, it's like, ooh, okay, she's really pissed now. He's talking about her. <laughs> uh, but with the Sharonas, especially with the coronation and the wedding and all the rest of it, um, their religion has been called a lot more center stage, although we still haven't seen that much of the purely Euromathian religious tradition. One thing that made the Ternathian Empire... All we've got is Arcana, really. Well, well, yes, yeah. Well, uh, the Arpathians... But, but that's, we have you know, one island nation, yes. Yeah. Well, well what, one of the things that Ternathia did that was the, one of the reasons that their empire expanded as well as it did is that they integrated into their slowly expanding empire the new cultures uh, and religions. For example, they have what they call the double triad. And this is basically the, the, the triad of ancient, ancient deities of Ternathia. And then there are three other deities who they, their empire encountered. And they are, they are the revealed Triad. In other words, it's like as Shurkal, for example, was incorporated into the empire. One of their deities, essentially, it was like the, the this is the counterpart of Mother Maritha, um, and so this is the 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 other part of the triad. And Ternathia genuinely did this. It was not just adopting forms, and so Ternathia changed at the same time that it was changing all these other other cultures. Um, and that was a huge reason that the empire lasted as long as it did before it voluntarily began, contra- it began contracting. And there are different theories on Sharona as to why that happened. It got too expensive. There were people who wanted out. There were this. There were that. None of these expl- explanations have ever been completely satisfactory. And the, um, the uh, imperial seat of the Trinathian Empire for a long time was Tajbana, which is basically Constantinople slash Istanbul. And one of the little things that should have sort of started people thinking was that when the Calaraths pulled back and, and Tajbana was no longer inside the borders of the Trinathian Empire, they never gave up the lease on on the Grand Palace in Tajbana. They still owned it, even though they let other people live in it. And not everybody knew that they owned it, but they still owned it. And the reason they still owned it was that the emperor who started the pullback knew that someday they would be back. <laughs> <laughs> you that. I, I, that's yeah, that, that's one of the things that if you are an opponent of the Calaraths, okay, you have to be aware that these people are willing to play games not because, they, not because they're game players, but because this is the way that it works. They will, they will be executing strategies that you don't know anything about that started in their great-grandfather's day and they're directed at your grandson's day. So, you know, when you decide to go up against the Calarath, 
you know, you get, you better be pretty sure of your ground here. Um, now that, by the way, that doesn't mean that there's a perception, even among Calabras, that anything that's glimpsed will happen. That you couldn't glimpse it if that wasn't the case. And yet, if you think about it, the fact that uh, Zindel was able to manipulate while he was in fugue state, uh, while you know, while his bodyguards are trying to grab him and he's not where they want, want him to be, he knows in the middle of that scene that, that while all that's going on, he knows there he's dealing with possibilities, not certainties. Okay, so the Calabras may be working to a very detailed plan. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work the way that they thought it was going to work when they get there. So it's kind of like, yes, it will be exactly that way, unless it's not. Um, I, I, I like to play with the notions of, of um, omniscience or near omniscience and how it can be limited in a book. Uh, in a in a literary universe, and so clearly for the Calabras, it's that it's fragmentary, and that your your context is limited. So you know you can't know for sure where this all fits in. I mean, there there are moments when Zindel suddenly realizes, or Darcel realizes, that he's seeing part of what Zindel had glimpsed coming to pass, like when Calabras when when Andrew stands up and uh, defies the defies uh, Chava. In, in the council meeting. And that's one of the things that, that Zindel had seen, even though he didn't know what would be going on at that moment. In the uh, in Norfressa, I cheated by going with uh, with uh, the well. You can't know what uh, what the outcome is going to be till the superposition collapses. Except they don't call it that. Uh, but the deities see all the possible outcomes. So they know exactly what will come to pass. They just don't know what will come to pass in this particular universe's frames. Mm. <laughs> yes, we have omniscience. It doesn't help a lot, but we have omniscience. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, so, you know, it's like, how do you make this work? How can you have one of these people who has this ability and not turn it into the device that drives the entire story and makes everything inevitable? Um and I've I've done two different ways in in Norfressa and in the multiverse. Um, I have a third one that I would unfortunately have to launch another series to to do. All <laughs> bye right. bye, Tony. Good night. Thank bye, you Tony. so much, both of you. Thank Good you, night. Bye. Oh, bye bye. Bye. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel, of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. We barely touched the Grace's tanks, Isham said, looking at the computer. I mean, the Alpha took them down, but less than a quarter. 
There's three times a fill-up for the Alpha in Grace's tanks, and the Alpha wasn't dry. And we filled the large. I figured with the Coasties on it, they weren't going to up and run off with it. We were just preparing for a supply run when the word broke out about the plague, Victor Gilbert, first mate of the offshore support vessel MV Grace Tan, said. We sort of packed along our... He stopped, and his face worked. We packed along our families. Just a little... cruise. Mr. Gilbert, Steve said, handing him a glass dark with whiskey. The same thing would have happened if they were on land. Yeah, Gilbert said, taking a drink. But I wouldn't have had to watch my wife and kids turn, you know? I'm one of the few who doesn't, Steve admitted, shrugging. Luck. Planning. Bloody-mindedness, Isham said. That is well, Steve said. Issues? No, Isham said, just keeping it in mind. So I ended up in the compartment with Stella, Larry Ashley's wife, and... Christ, Lewis is Jeff Bolser's kid. Jeff was the deck boss, Larry was maintenance, and Sharon, she's Chad Wilborn's daughter, and Rich, he's Sherry and Bob Tilly's son. Sherry was the systems tech. Nobody has anybody. No, Steve said. You all have each other. Captain Gilbert, those are the only children except Tina we found. Alive, anyway. This plague may or may not have wiped out civilization, but it has wiped out an entire generation. Yeah, but there seems to be a new one on the way, Isham said, chuckling. Pardon, Gilbert said. Ahem, <clears throat> Steve said. I'm not going to pry, but I suspect Stella is pregnant. How'd you... Gilbert said, his eyes flaring. Look. No worries, mate, Steve said, shaking his head. Just about every woman who was in a compartment with a man is pregnant, and we can usually sort out the rapes from the other. Vic, Isham said to the still visibly upset captain, take a deep breath. What Steve is saying is that it's how things are now, part of the new now. Hell, there's even a meme. Meme, Gilbert said. Like LOL cats or something? Sort of, Steve said. I wouldn't be surprised if someone hasn't photoshopped it onto a picture of a pregnant woman. The saying is, what happened in the compartment stays in the compartment. Goes two ways. There's stuff that happens that you're really ashamed of, on boats, in compartments, having to kill somebody who turned. Or hell, Isham said. There's one boat where there was a death that people just don't talk about. It came out slow, but they sort of hemmed and hawed. And the response is, what happened in the compartment stays in the compartment, Steve said. If there's a complaint, we investigate it, to the extent we can. But Stella hasn't even hinted it was rape. It wasn't, honest, Gilbert said, holding up his hands. Hell, it just sort of... You can talk about it if you want, Steve said, shrugging, or keep it in the compartment. But you don't have to be guilty about it. Yes, her husband was recently dead. So was your wife. The right way, even if you'd liked each other before, was to wait a decent period. You were alone in a compartment with nothing else to do and death all around you. Except the kids, in this case, Isham said. We waited till they were asleep and did it real quiet. Gilbert said, sue me. 
Again and again, if necessary, Steve said. No worries. One of the women from a life raft? The man with her had to kill her husband when he turned. And she's pregnant, and they're a couple. Humans adjust to the incredible. The survivors do. And one of the ways we adjust is things like what happened in the compartment stays in the compartment. Nobody but the people in the compartment, life raft, what have you, can really judge. It is one of the reasons that people in unusual jobs are given different courts than common citizens. Seamen have their own courts, military, because there is a reality to you weren't there. You can't know. You can't understand. And then there's the prison thing, Isham said, smirking. Prison thing? Gilbert said, then grimaced. What happened in the compartment, Steve said. Stays in the compartment, Gilbert said. Got it. So seriously, no issues, Steve said. The real issue is that while we're starting to find some professionals, most of our crews are not professional seamen. Most of our captains are not professional seamen. And we have a real critical shortage of engineering personnel. Even mechanics. So when something breaks on a boat, the crews are generally stuck. And although most of them have been through storms, it's mostly been while stuck in compartments or puking up their guts holding on for dear life in lifeboats and rafts. No storms while you've been doing this? Gilbert asked. Nothing serious, Steve said, shrugging. High summer, and we've only had one tropical come up this way. That was before we started clearing, and it was only a storm by the time it got here. I remember that one, Gilbert said. Me too, Isham said. So, we're going to have to move, Steve said. Move, Isham said. Why? We've got a good harbor here. You've got Bermuda Harbor, Gilbert said, which is an okay harbor. You get hit by a really hard, late season, I'm gonna rip you a new asshole hurricane, this is not the harbor you want to be in. And with ships absent a truly excellent harbor, it's better to be at sea, Steve said. If you've got the right crew, which we don't, and the small craft, there's a reason they call it a small craft advisory. Between the late season hurricanes we're going to get soon and the dire murals and winter storms, I'm thinking Canary Islands. Good choice, Gilbert said, nodding. We're going to have to fuel. I mean, the Grace has plenty for herself and probably enough for a while for the small boats, but not to constantly refuel the Alpha. Could you tow a full-size tanker? Steve asked. Yes, Gilbert said, but I'd need a tow crew who knew what they were doing. How about a guy who knows what he is doing and some people willing to learn, Steve said, grinning because that is the best you are going to get for any job in this flotilla. What fun, what fun, Gilbert said, grimacing. In that case, I can try, but I'll be perfectly content to cut it loose. Works, Steve said. I think we're going to have to leave the Vicky. I really should have gotten Mike in on this, but you've got quite a few accommodations, from what I saw. We could have carried a lot more people than we did, Gilbert said, then sighed. I don't think that would have been a good idea. There were few good choices, Steve said. As I said, my family was lucky. Although, he added, shrugging, the basic plan would have worked. I wouldn't have been able to do this without one aspect, but... Be that as it may, we can put more people on the grace. 
We can put people on the Alpha. I'm willing to push it to the first diurnal, or if we see a cyclone coming this way. For the diurnal, we'll bring the small boats in. But when either happens, we are upping stakes and heading away from the northeast Atlantic. There's still a lot of boats and rafts out there, Isham pointed out. And we can't rescue anyone if we're dead, Steve said. I am audacious, not stupid. Thereafter, we will head to the Canaries and do this same thing, more or less. There are distress beacons everywhere, and only we few, we happy few, to clear them. Depending on how many EPIRBs there are in that area, we may cut back across the ocean to the Caribbean in winter. I would like to be off of Cuba by January. But I do not want to do that at the cost of leaving many behind. Which means we need more boats and more captains. Despite that, I'm going to start shutting down 35s, including the Endeavour, and I'm going to drag Captain Sherrill out of it if it's the last thing I do. Good luck, Isham said. Sherrill? Fully rated captain, Steve said, who is totally stuck on his tiny little Bertram 35. Used to run freighters for mask and chucked it. Had a hissy fit, as he puts it, for being a charter captain out of Charleston. Doesn't want the responsibility. I'm going to have to convince him otherwise. Like I said... Isham said, good luck. There was a knock on the door and Isham looked at Steve. Enter, Steve called. Commodore, the young woman said nervously. Sorry, but Captain Cheryl is calling and she says it's urgent. Speaking of Captain Gilligan, Steve said, where's the radio room on this tub? What's up, Git? See fit, Steve said. You need to get out here, Cheryl replied instantly. Now. Steve was used to the irascible skipper's usual tones. Desperately serious was a new one. Details, he replied. You know how you're always talking about people dying, waiting for rescue and compartments? Yes, Steve said. It's a cruise ship. I'm watching that in real time. Get in your fucking tub and get your Aussie ass and all the guns you can find out here. I'll help clear this one. There are people still alive in their staterooms, and they're looking at me. I'm making a banner that says, help is on the way, hold on. Get out here, Wolf, now. All ships relay that information to all receiving stations, Steve said. All vessels converge his Seafit's location. Large, time to earn your munificent pay from your friendly uncle, and time to fish or cut bait on the arms locker. Victoria? Begin transfer all personnel and mobile equipment to Grace. Endeavour. 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 Commodore, are you in radio range? Over. Envopros, Seafit. Endeavour's about 20 miles away, Commodore, Cheryl called. Their response was preceding our location. Begin surface clearance, Steve said. Do not do entry until I arrive. Relay that, Cheryl. Commodore moving to location now. All vessels, don't spare the horses. Wolf out. He looked over at Isham and Gilbert. Get all of Victoria's personnel and stores on your boat, Gilbert, Steve said. And any of the SLLs left. When you're cross-loaded, head to the location, Isham. Tell Captain Miguel to make ready for sea. Are you taking this? No time, Steve said. I wish I had something faster than the toy.
That tears it, Galloway said. Sir? Commander Freeman said. I'm not talking about the captaincy, Commander, Galloway said. But we're also not going to stand by and let who knows how many survivors die sealed into a cruise ship. Get me the Dallas and Charlotte. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, Rachel Mintel, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a long train of nasturtiums plucked from a dozen alternate universes and woven together by Babbage machine algorithms and tinker fairy magic into a colonial artificial intelligence dedicated to singing choruses of thanks and praise to David Weber and Joel Presby, the authors of The Road to Hell. And Rachel, say hello to your fan club. Thank you so much. I had no idea that people would actually like hearing my voice, considering that editing my own audio was kind of cringeworthy. Shout out to you guys. I love you all, too. And please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. (laughs) 